0: you are new with us today, Uh, again, I just want to reiterate how grateful I am that you're here. Thank you for joining us this particular Sunday. Um, We're honored to have you. Um, I hope that you pick up on the fact that we, University Baptist Church, we want to be a church that helps people become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ who know him and make him known in the world. And uh, that's what we're all about. We hope that you pick that up as part of our mission and vision and the passions that we carry uh, in this church. One of the ways that we believe that we can truly know God. Um, Really the best way that we can know God is seeing him through the truth of scripture. And so uh, today we want to um, pursue knowing Christ biblically as revealed in his written word. And so if you have your Bible today, you can open up to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. Um, as you're turning there, I want to start by telling a little story about my daughter, Reagan. Uh, she is 14 now, but if you are a parent, you know how you have some of those memories that just stick with you from when they were really little? Uh, we all have, the, all these parents have these. Well, I have one of those. One day we were sitting at dinner at my in-law's house. Uh, the family was kind of around the table, and, um, you know, we're trying to... Keep this, you know, get this converse, adult conversation going around the table, which you know is basically an exercise in futility. If you have kids who are 10 and under at the table, you know what I mean? You're just trying to drive yourself nuts when you try to have adult conversation. But we, every time we would try to get the adult conversation going, here's what happened. Reagan would just start to speak up and just say what whatever, whatever was on her mind. And I remember my mother-in-law, we call her Grammy. She opened her mouth to say something and Reagan just kind of piped in and was like, well, guys, I went to the park today. And I played there, and she just starts talking about the park. And so we let her finish. Well, then afterwards, pops. My father in law tries to get the adult conversation going, and it's like Reagan just is oblivious, and she's just like, you know what? I, I hate bees. They scare me. I do not like them. And she just starts talking. Well, the conversation—you know—we try to get the conversation going one more time. My wife is like, "Uh, you know, hey guys, let's talk." And then Reagan chimes in, and she's like, "My dad is the greatest man of all time." All right? Like, um, she didn't really say that, but I wish she did. And, but she kept interjecting, you know, like over and over again. And eventually, uh, my father-in-law pops. You know, looks at everybody around the table, and he basically says, "This boy." she never stops transmitting and uh it's true she couldn't she just couldn't be quiet right and so today today we're going to talk about a couple men who just couldn't be quiet they could not stop transmitting about the lord jesus christ and i hope that the world will come to say the same thing about us as christians uh this is you know Week nine in our study through the book of Acts, we're going to pick up in chapter four where this story occurs. Um, If you're new with us, let me give you just a quick summary of what leads up to chapter four. Um, In Acts chapter one, we have the resurrected Christ who ascends back into heaven. Before he ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples, I want you to go wait in Jerusalem because as you're waiting there, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Chapter 2, the disciples are waiting in Jerusalem and on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes on them and they start to minister in power and thousands of people are saved. Many people join the church. In chapter 3... Peter, uh, actually, the Apostle Peter heals a man who had been lame from birth. He healed him in the temple during an hour when there were thousands of people gathered there to pray. And when uh, they had had really seen and heard about this miracle, they all gathered and assembled near Peter and he preached the gospel to them. That's what we looked at last week at chapter 3. So today we pick up in chapter 4. Today we're going to work our way um, from verses 1 through 22. Gonna Like typical, like we usually do, we're going to make some teaching points along the way. A couple takeaways and application at the end. And here's what I hope happens at the end. I, I hope you and I hope we leave here today believing the gospel. And if you do, I hope that you are resolved to never stop transmitting it. Never stop transmitting it. Alright, so let's look at chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, and as they, that's talking about Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people... The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. When that phrase came upon them is there, it means that they, um, that they aggressively grabbed them. Verse two says that they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So, what do we have here? We have the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees that are coming after the apostles. The Sadducees are a, a big, kind of a big, uh, big word, important group of people in the New Testament, but sometimes we don't necessarily know a lot about them. So, here we go. Um, politically. Well, religiously first, really we would say they were the religious leaders of the day. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees were kind of the religious leaders of the day. Now that Christ has resurrected from death, from death and ascended to heaven, the Sadducees have come to more of a position of power. and so they were more in charge of the temple activities. they were viewed as having spiritual authority over the Jews. That's religiously, politically speaking, though the Sadducees were very tied in, uh, tied into the Roman government, and so the part of what Rome did was the Roman officials appointed um, the chief priests and the leaders of the Sadducees, and so um, you know. The, the Jewish Sadducees kind of kowtowed to whatever the Roman government wanted. And so Rome really liked that uh, the Sadducees were able to keep the peace and, and uh, kind of prevent these big uprisings from occurring. And so that's just a little bit about the Sadducees. Well, these Sadducees were greatly annoyed by Peter and John and the events that were going on in the temple. Why did it bother him so much? Here's, there's two reasons why. The first one is that the crowds were starting to get stirred up and riled up. Like these, you know, again, the Sadducees received favor from Rome if they could keep the crowds under control, if they could kind of stop any sort of uprisings from happening, if they could kind of minimize the disturbances. Well, what had just happened? This man was healed. Thousands of people in the temple all gathered. They're listening now to Peter as he proclaims a message. That was a, a kind of just an unusual event. And the Sadducees would have been paying attention because they didn't want anything too crazy to happen. The second, thing, the second reason why they were annoyed at the apostles' teaching was because the apostles were teaching something different than what the Sadducees taught. And here's the thing. The disciples were preaching that Jesus was resurrected from death. And not only that, they were preaching that resurrection um, could happen for those who were in Jesus, those who had faith in him. But here's the problem. The Sadducees didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead. Right? They had, in other words, they had no hope after this life was over. So when I was a kid in Sunday school, my Sunday school teachers, always, they would ta- teach me this and it always stuck with me. They said, the Sadducees didn't believe in life after death, so they were very sad, you see. Okay, like it just kind of stuck with me. I'm like, okay. Again, as I've said many times, it doesn't have to be cool. It just has to be memorable. All right, so it helps you guys remember things. Well, they were annoyed with the apostles' teaching because, one, it was stirring up the crowds. Two, it disagreed with their own teaching. Well, the Sadducees took serious action about this. We read about this in verse 3. Verse 3 says, and they arrested them. The Sadducees arrested Peter and John and they put them into custody until the next day for it was already evening. We tend to just kind of breeze by these little phrases like it was, it was already evening. But it's actually kind of important and it gives us further insight into other passages of scripture as well. Here's what you need to understand. The Jewish law did not allow trials to occur at night. And so they were supposed to be in custody all evening until the morning. And this little fact is why it's so important when we read the gospel accounts of Jesus and his uh, trial and crucifixion. It's why it's such a big deal that Jesus' trial took place at night on the night before he was crucified. He received an unlawful trial according to the law of the Jews. And who was at that unlawful trial of Jesus? You can read about it in John chapter 18 and Matthew chapter 26. You can read that there were two men there named Caiaphas and Annas. And as we'll soon see, those two men are now also involved in this trial of Peter and John. So um, the Sadducees arrested Peter and John. They held them overnight. Pick up in verse 4. But many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. I think that's amazing. 5,000, right? The church was growing so large, so quickly. Just think about this. The, the number of disciples went from 120 back in chapter 1 to 3,000 in chapter 2. Now it's up to 5,000 in chapter 3. And, and that's just the men according to this text, not even including the women and children. And here's what we've got to understand. This is all occurring from the time of Jesus' resurrection until now. That's about an eight-week period. Two months, the church is just blowing up, right? Um, These people, they, they heard the preaching of Peter and John. They saw the healing of the lame man. They actually also saw the leader's arrest. Uh, Peter and John, and it says still they believed, right? They chose to believe in Christ, uh, even though these two preachers had just been arrested. So look at verse five. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were in the high priestly family. So catch what's going on. You've got Peter and John. They're in front of this high priestly family, this crowd, this jury of religious rulers, if you will. Caiaphas and Annas were there. They were the same two guys who conspired with Judas and the other uh, religious leaders to have Jesus crucified just weeks prior to this. We don't often make connections like that, right? Like sometimes we know the story of Jesus, we read the book of Acts, but we kind of think of them as being really distant from each other. But we're only talking about a couple months. Well, now Peter and John are on trial in front of these same men. So what do we know? This is not going to be a friendly trial. This is not going to be a friendly jury. These guys are mad. They thought they had gotten rid of Jesus, yet now his disciples are showing up on the scene performing miracles just like Jesus did. Pick up in verse 7. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Verse 8. So you've got to imagine Peter here, right? He's saying, let's get this straight. You're accusing us of doing a bad thing? And this bad thing is is healing a man, and, and now this lame man can walk? Well, let it be known to you, right? This man's healing came in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You all know him. It was done by his power. And that's the man that you, Caiaphas, and you, Annas, and you, Sadducees, that's the man that you had put to death. So Peter's basically saying, look, who really did the wrong thing here? You understand? Who really did the wrong thing here? You put to death the man who has the power to heal the lame. You killed him. God gave him life. You rejected him. God glorified him. You put him in the grave, but God raised him up. I love Peter's courage right here. I just, I'm imagining this hostile trial coming against him and he's just, you know, he's just ready to go. Bold, unashamed, fearless, powerful preaching. And he's speaking to the same group that plotted Jesus's murder. This is amazing to me. You know, uh, Remember the last time Peter was around Caiaphas and Annas and these rulers? When, the last time he was around them was while Jesus was having that mistrial and Peter was out in the courtyard trying to listen in and figure out what was going on. And he was so nervous that this little teenage girl said, hey, I think I remember you being with Jesus. And three times that night, Peter was so cowardly that he denied Christ. That was the last time he was around these guys. Now he's boldly preaching to them during a trial. How does that happen? Verse 8 says it happened because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will change your life, won't he? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you been saved and received the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit will change your life. He will make you what you once were not. He will make you new. Peter boldly proclaims the message of Jesus to the hostile crowd verse 11, Peter continues preaching. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So Peter references this stones and building thing, and it kind of seems out of the blue until you understand what's going on. Peter is quoting Psalm 118. Psalm 118 would have been a psalm that the Uh, scribes and and Sadducees and the religious uh, chief priests and such. They would have been very familiar with that psalm. But over time, those certain psalms in the Old Testament became known as messianic psalms. And they speak about the prophesied Messiah. And here the inference is that the Messiah will be like a stone that is rejected, but not just any stone, the cornerstone. And so, you know, in old school building projects, the cornerstone was the most important stone in the project. It was usually literally placed in the corner to guide kind of workers in their course of building. Once the cornerstone was set, it became the basis for determining all the other measurements and all the placements of all the other stones were built on top of it. Everything was built on the foundation of the cornerstone. And Peter is saying Jesus is the Messiah. He's the foundational cornerstone that you Jews have been waiting for all along. He's, you know, and you guys are the ones who rejected him. Now, what do we know now? Jesus is indeed the cornerstone on which the church is built, right? He's our foundation. He sets our course he gives us our direction. We are to be aligned with him. Guys, if, we're, if we are trying to build a church on anything else other than Jesus, what is it? All other ground is what? Sinking sand. What do we sing? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' love and righteousness. On Christ the what? Solid rock I stand. It's why we sing this song. We're gonna sing it after the service. You know, uh, Christ alone, the cornerstone. He's the corner. Everything was built on him. Peter tells these Jewish leaders, Jesus was the cornerstone. You tossed him aside like some other worthless stone, but everything was supposed to be built off of him. And then Peter goes on to say this, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is saying, look, salvation is not gonna be found in anyone else. It's in no other name. This is the proclamation of the uh, exclusively saving power of the name of Jesus, right? What do we have here again? Peter boldly, powerfully preaching the gospel, unhindered, unashamed, just proclaiming the truth. Guys, Peter is saying to the Jews, right? um, Hey, no, salvation is not granted to you just because you're a Jew, And I say to you, like, salvation is not granted to us just because we're Baptists. Salvation is not granted to us just because we grew up in a Christian family or have Christian heritage. No, all roads don't lead to heaven. No, we all don't just end up there. The teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Scripture and the teaching of the apostles is not universalism. It's exclusivism. Salvation through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Right, so there's one way, there's one door, there's one gate, and all who call upon the name of who? The Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. No, under, no other name under heaven's gonna save you. No other name under heaven is going to save anybody in this world. Not the name of your favorite preacher. Not the name of your favorite politician. Not the name of your favorite philosopher. Not the name of Muhammad. Not the name of Krishna. Not the name of Buddha. Not a Pope's name. Not a preacher's or pastor's name. And certainly not our own names. We cannot save ourselves. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. The world needs to hear this. Peter is boldly preaching it. We should boldly preach it now. And I want us to see how these religious leaders responded. It says in verse 13: when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. And they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Verse 13 says, that the Jewish leaders perceived that Peter and John were common men. In the original Greek language, the word common is the Greek word idiotes, (laughs) right? You know, I don't even have to translate, right? Like you you get it. But Peter and John, they were common men. It doesn't, it really doesn't mean that they were dumb. It just means that they were untrained, um, unschooled, uh, unlearned in the typical ways. And so, Yet here they were, like these guys didn't go to rabbi training school or anything else, right? But yet here they were, um, quoting scripture, interpreting scripture, and the chief priests and Sadducees, they were impressed, right? They, um, they, weren't, they hadn't received the tra- same training that all these uh, religious leaders had received. In today's culture, we would say, wait a minute, these guys didn't go to seminary. Yet God used these same guys to write portions of the scripture that we still use today. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? These were the common men who preached and thousands of people gave their lives to Christ. These are the common men who God used to bring healing to the lame. What was so special about these common men? What was so special? It wasn't that they went to seminary. It was that they had what? Been with Jesus. And I want to be very clear. I'm not anti-education. I'm not anti-seminary. I've gone to seminary. Uh, Indeed, the scriptures actually tell us to do what? Study to show yourself a workman approved unto God. So yes, we should study hard and we should know the scripture. But here's the thing. We need time with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives far more than we need some man-made program or degree. Common men become uncommon men when they become Jesus' men. And the same for ladies. He changes us. Something uncommon comes about in our life when we become filled with the Holy Spirit connected to Jesus. The Jewish leaders were astonished that these common disciples uh, were here doing this ministry. And, and And rightly so, because not only had these men been with Jesus, but there was also a man standing right beside them. Who was the man standing with them? It was the crippled man who had been healed. Verse 14 says, but the crowd seeing the the crippled man, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Right? I mean, what could you really say? You know what I mean? Like the Jewish leaders would have gone into the temple day in and day out. And they would have saw this man begging for alms by the gate, beautiful, by the beautiful gate. And now he, this same guy is right there in front of them. In their face, they could either accept that power and authority and healing and transformation come in the mighty name of Jesus, or they could accept it. So what are they going to do? Verse 15 tells us. But when they, again, talking about the Jewish leaders, had commanded them, Peter, John, the healed man, to leave the council, they conferred with one another and saying. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. When God's at work, you can't deny it, right? It's, it's there, it's in your face. You can accept it or you can reject it. You, you can love it or you can hate it, but you can't deny that it's going on. So these leaders couldn't deny it, but they also didn't want to accept it. So what are they gonna do? Verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Right? They couldn't deny the work of Christ. So what did they try to do instead? They just tried to silence it. All sorts of cultural tie-ins between then and now, aren't there? No talking about Jesus in the workplace. Unless you want to curse his name, then that's cool. No talking about God in the lecture halls of our academies and universities, unless you want to argue against his existence. No talking about Christianity in the public sectors, uh, because, you know, separation of church and state. So what's going on, right? When you can't win the argument, you know, uh, when you can't win the argument and you can't deny the facts, what do you have to do? You just have to silence the witness, Listen, Satan knows that he can't change the facts. Satan knows that he can't rewrite history that Jesus Christ, the son of God, lived, died, was buried, and rose again. He can't change that. So what does he want to do? He's just been for for 2,000 years now just trying to silence the witnesses. He did it in Jerusalem. He's gonna try to do it to me and you today. Satan can't change the facts, so he tries to silence the witnesses. Be aware of that. Well, that's what the Jewish religious leaders try to do. But look at the apostles' response in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I love what Peter and John do here. They say, you know, should we listen to God or should we listen to you? Because, you know, you guys are the religious leaders and you're supposed to be God's men. So you tell us what to do. Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? Right? And Peter puts it back on them, and then he just says, but we, we can't help but share what we've seen and heard. They saw, Peter and John had saw the risen Christ. They interacted with him. They heard his teaching. They saw his miracles. They, they, they had been witnesses to everything that he had done, and now they were compelled to tell the world, even if it meant disobeying the cultural authorities of the day. Verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So God had been at work. All the people knew it. Even the Jewish leaders knew it because they had seen this guy in the temple for 40 years begging for alms. And now they can do nothing because the people, you know, they're, they're seeing God's work at hand. So were they, were they going to punish the people who did these terrible deeds of healing in Jesus' name? No. Were they going to ch- really be able to silence the guy who had lived for 40 years as a cripple and now he can run around and jump and walk and tell people? No. They're not, they, all they could do was threaten. And so they let the apostles go. And as we'll see through the rest of the book of Acts, go they did. And they told the world, and they continued to bear witness, and as we will see in the book of Acts, many, many more people came to believe upon Jesus Christ, which leads to the first of two takeaways for us. Here it is. Takeaway number one. If you haven't done so yet, believe in the life-changing name of Jesus. Believe in the life-changing name of Jesus. In our text, right, there was this crippled man who had become healed. People saw his transformation in the mighty name of Jesus. They wanted to know what happened, so they gathered together to hear. And, and Peter told them the message of the gospel and the life-changing power of Jesus. And I just want to say that there may be some in this service this morning, or maybe in our future services this after, the, later this morning, where, you know, you come today and you're, you're here because uh, somebody who you know, their life has changed. You know their former life. You know the way they used to be. You know how they once were. And you know they're totally different now. And you've heard their testimony that this was all the change that came about because of Jesus. And like the people in the crowd from our story, you may be here today. And you might want to know, where can this real power for real life change come from? And I want to say to you the same thing that Peter said to the crowds. Only in the name of Jesus is there real life-changing transformative power. Life-changing power is found in the name of Jesus. Every one of us in this room who is truly born again, we would testify and say, amen, he's changed my life. Because we are all sinners. And everybody in this room has sinned grievously against the almighty God. He's holy, we're not. We are separated from him because of why? Our sin. There's a sin barrier between us and God. And in order for our relationship with God to be restored, that sin barrier has to be removed. Our sin needs to be forgiven. So how has God made the way for our sins to be forgiven? He sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come to this earth, live the sinless life that none of us could live, die the sinner's death that we all deserve to die, not him. And he died. And he overcame sin and death by rising from the grave three days later. And the Bible says that it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness. If we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. Our sins will be forgiven and we will have a relationship with God again. 5,000 believed by the time we get to Acts chapter 4. Maybe there's one person who needs to believe here today. So believe in the life-changing name of Jesus and you will be saved. And for those of us who have been saved, and those of us whose lives have been touched by the transforming power of Jesus, here's the second takeaway. Guys, let's never stop transmitting. (laughs) Let's never stop transmitting the message of Jesus. In our text, right, the disciples they couldn't help but share what they had seen and heard. That's the definition of what it means to be a witness, right? It's not complicated, it's not difficult. And this is the main call through the book of Acts. Be my witnesses. Share what you have seen and heard. So everybody in this room who calls yourself a Christian, honestly, what? Like if somebody just sat down with you and and they said, hey, tell me what you've seen God do in your life. Tell me what you've seen God do in this world. What would you share? We all have a story. Tell them your story. Nobody can argue with your story or your experience. Get used to sharing your testimony. Get used to sharing what you know personally that God has done. Some of you might be like, I would love to know how to do that. I'm a little nervous. I've never been really shown how to share my testimony or share the gospel with anybody. Part of what our missions team does that I mentioned earlier is they offer classes. And right now on Sunday mornings, we are offering a class called Gospel Conversations. And if you want to be trained in how to share your testimony and how to talk to unbelievers about Christ, I encourage you go to that class. You know, you'll learn how to share your faith. You'll learn how to share your story. And I'll say this. We live in a culture right now, this day and age, that is increasingly trying to clamp down on how much we can share. And I just want to say, forthrightly to this as my church family, we are not obligated to stop talking about Jesus no matter what restrictions any authority, man-made authority, may try to put on us. Yes, we should do all that we can to try to obey man-made authority. The same Peter who actually spoke and said, we can't help but share here. The same Peter is going to write in a a later book of the Bible where he tells us that we should be subject to every human institution, whether emperor or governor. So we should do our best to obey human authority. But when human authority conflicts with God's authority, we must do what? We must obey God rather than men. And sharing the gospel is a God-given, Jesus-instituted command. No one has any greater authority than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no message greater than the gospel. So yes, at times we may have to just go against the man-made authorities that are over us. It's going to annoy some people. It's going to disturb some people. Some won't like it, and some may not like you, and they may not like me. But don't be surprised when it happens. Don't be deterred. The scripture says very clearly, 2 Timothy 2.12, that indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So if you're living for Jesus, you should expect some opposition to come for most of us The most hostile thing we're going to get might be somebody telling us to be quiet or an eye roll or a walk away or an I won't talk to you. Some of us may have to face work consequences if we won't stop talking about Jesus. Other brothers and sisters around the world are giving up their lives. Being burned alive and getting their heads cut off for the sake of the gospel. Listen, Jesus said this, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. So what, church family, let's obey King Jesus and let the chips fall where they may. Never stop transmitting. God might want to use you to reach a large crowd. He may want to use you to reach one person. But church family, may the world see that our lives have been changed. And may they see that we will not stop transmitting the gospel. And may they say of us what they said of the apostles. We see that these people have been with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, uh, we need your help. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the courage and uh, the power to proclaim the gospel in a culture that is increasingly antagonistic. Lord, I pray uh, specifically for our children who are growing up in the world that's going to be much different than their parents and grandparents. I pray for our college students, especially those in secular universities where um, the teachings of Christianity are uh, more and more um, being opposed. I want to pray, Lord, for those of us who have workplace uh, decisions to make and consequences that can come when we have the opportunity um, to either speak of you or be quiet. I pray, Lord, that you would give us, by your grace, the courage to say and to make much of Christ and to speak his name. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom to know when we should and when we should not. I pray that you would give us uh, the ability to truly, as First Peter says, um, fear God and honor the emperor. It's hard to do. We need your wisdom. But, Lord, I pray that you would... Um, Make this a church where we are unashamedly speaking of Jesus because we are faithfully walking with him. We wanna walk with you, Jesus, day by day. Thank you that you walk with us. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.